0: All right. Does everybody have the notes on observation for hermeneutics? Okay. All right. We are now switching to our discussion of hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible. Okay. The first step in Bible study is simply observing the text. Now, in the Philippines, I was a seminary professor And I taught homiletics a few times. Homiletics is how to preach. And one of the things that I learned very quickly with my students is that they would often sit down with their minds made up what they wanted to say when they preached and then they would go look for a text in the Bible that said what they wanted to say. (laughs) That is the wrong approach to handling the Word of God. The right approach is to see what the Bible says, understand it, and then apply it and share it with somebody else. Okay? And in order to do that, you 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 have this sounds stupid, okay? But before you try to interpret the Bible, you have to look at it. Okay? I know. Uh, you're gonna build a megachurch that way. Oh that's true. Well, I guess we're not gonna be a mega church, but Hopefully, will be a sound church. Um, we, we, we have a tendency to want to jump in to interpretation without even making sure we know what's in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at. Okay. The three steps of sound Bible study are observation, interpretation, and application. In observation, you look to see what's there. In interpretation, you figure out what it means, and in application... You figure out what it is telling you or somebody to do, all right? It really has to be done in this order. If you do it in any other order, you're going to get into trouble. But we have this instinctive inclination when we look at a piece of scripture to say, what does it mean, what is it telling me to do, without taking some time to really let it run through our minds and look it over carefully and examine the details and look at the context okay so let's not let's not short circuit that i don't know if those of you in the back can read this can you read this okay okay there are a couple of different ways to look at this process of studying the bible one is to say that it's linear you observe it you interpret it and then you apply it now that sounds good in theory, but in reality, you don't usually do it this way. Because you often find when you go to imply it, now nah, maybe I didn't quite understand it right. And you need to go back and you need to look at it again. A better way to think about this is that you sort of got this spiral and you keep on going around until you're pretty confident you've got it right, and then you apply. You observe the text, you interpret it, and then there's a step you can call validation. That's where you stop and say, "Is what th- does what I think this text means make sense? Is it consistent with what other portions of Scripture say? Is it so wacky that nobody else on the earth thinks it means what I happen to think it means? Okay? Now this is where You know, you're studying a portion of Scripture and you... You know, um, here's a verse. I'm going to pull it out of context. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Okay? Well, I think that means that if you have two or three people, you have a church. Okay? That's what I think that means. This is just for the sake of argument. Okay? Okay? it would be a good idea for me to open up a commentary or talk to somebody else who studied the passage and say, do you think that's what it means? And if they think that I'm off the wall, maybe I need to go back and observe and interpret again. Okay? So in reality, we tend to sort of go around a few times, and then when we're confident, then we go to application. It's kind of an iterative process. All right? Can you see how that works? Okay. Now, the process is cyclical, but it's got to start with observing the text. I'm going to say some things here that you're going to think are so obvious that they don't need to be said. But I think they do need to be said. Good observation of a text is analytical. Now. Analysis means looking at the little parts of something, taking it apart to see what it's made of. of. If I were going to analyze my watch, I'd get out some tools, and I'd unscrew all the screws, and take out the gears, and I'd look at it. Okay, That would be analysis. Now, hopefully, I could put it back together so that it works. That would be synthesis. Okay. Now, when you're studying a portion of scripture, you really do that. You look at the parts. But the parts by themselves are not enough to tell you what it means. You have to look at the parts as they make up the whole to get the meaning of the passage. Okay. In observation, our goal is to become very familiar with what's in the text. That's words, phrases, sentences, paragraphs, chapters, entire books, and what we could call logical structures things like cause and effect or question and answer and we'll talk about those in a minute okay so that when we ask later what does it mean w- by the way what is when you say what does it mean that is which step of the process there's three steps in the process right the first one is observation, observation then then, okay, what does it mean? Which one of those is it? Interpretation. Interpretation, okay? We want to have done our job in observing well so that when we finally say, what does it mean, we haven't missed something. And often we do that. Okay. Now, in observation, I would suggest first we have to pick a text to study. Duh. Okay? Okay. But that's not as silly as it sounds, okay? If you don't choose wisely, you're going to get into trouble. Now, secondly, we want to analyze the text. Look at the parts. Read it. Observe it analytically. You may want to diagram it. And you want to search for the topic, what the author emphasizes, and for structure. How does he put it together? Okay. Then we're going to synthesize the text. We're going to take the little pieces that we've seen and see how they go together. Now, you're not really going to clip your Bible up into little words and then reassemble them. But you're doing this in your head, Okay? You may want to chart the text. But the key things in synthesizing are summarizing. What's the topic and what's the proposition, Okay? If I say that this box contains a red toad, all right, the topic is this box. The proposition is it contains a red toad. Okay. Your passage of scripture says something. It's talking about a topic, and it says something about the topic. If you have understood the passage well, then you should be able to express the basic statement of that passage in a summary statement. Okay? And you can do this for anything from a single verse to a paragraph to a chapter to an entire book. Okay? Now you can look at um, you can look at 1 Samuel and say that 1 Samuel teaches that the king of God's choice is superior to the king of man's choice okay now I made that up and that's not a very comprehensive statement but first Samuel is about King Saul and King David right and there clearly is a comparison going on there and that book in a sense has a proposition it's got a topic the topic is the beginning of the kingdom or, or the monarchy in Israel And it says something about that. Now, my my summary statement may not be very great, but it's a summary statement, right? It has a topic, and it has a proposition. When the monarchy starts, the king of man's choice doesn't work out well. The king of God's choice does work out well. Okay, there's a summary statement. Okay? It's very important to synthesize, and I think this is a step that we're all weak on. Okay, now let's look at these a little bit. Selecting your text isn't difficult, but there's some pitfalls you want to avoid. Okay? Don't pick too small a portion of text. I'm going to give you a portion of text from Scripture. There is no God. (laughs) Go study it and tell me what you find out. Isn't that from Scripture? Isn't it inspired? It is, isn't it? Okay. But it's inspired as part of a larger statement, right? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Okay. I chose poorly. A wise choice is more likely to be a big chunk of text than a small chunk of text. Because the bigger your chunk of text is, the more of the context you're including and the more of the background material that the author gives you you're using. So you're less likely to miss something. Okay? Never attempt to study a phrase or a word in isolation. Okay? I should have failed in that. Uh, the verification phase probably. Okay, good. Yeah, your validation would show you that that was a bad idea if you were smart enough to ask for help from somebody else who had done it right. Okay, good. Um, When you're studying narratives, that means stories, it's best to study an entire story or an episode. Okay? If you're studying the parable of the prodigal son, And you focus in on him eating pods. Okay? If all you do is you study the couple sentences about him eating pods, or wanting to eat the pods that the pigs are eating, you may come to the conclusion that, um, I don't know, come up with some wacky conclusion that Jews are vegetarians. (laughs) You know, something like that. Okay? The writer didn't intend you to read only that sentence. Okay? Now stop and think about this for a minute. Scripture was given in order to communicate, right? The people who wrote those books under the guidance of the Holy Spirit wanted you to understand what they wrote. So if you open up their book and you pull a paragraph out of context and read it, you know what you're doing? You are bypassing the efforts of the people who wrote, or the person who wrote that book. You are cheating him of your attention to the entire thing that he wrote. And I've written a couple of books, and if you went and pulled some of the paragraphs out and you said, this is all I want, I'd be pretty unhappy. First of all, you might misunderstand what I said, and the other thing is you might miss. <coughs> The other stuff that I said, which is far more important than the little part you picked out. okay? The writer designed the entire book to accomplish his purpose. And if you're not willing to at least consider the entire book as the context of the little portion that you're looking at, you're cheating him, or you're throwing out all the work that he did to give you a clear communication. Can you see that? It's really not fair. That's why we need to know all of Scripture. We need to study big chunks. Okay. It's always better, excuse me, to start with too big a portion of text and narrow it down if it's too much to handle than to start too small. Okay? You can always narrow your study later. Now, the second step is analyzing the text. Okay, warning. Analysis without synthesis is a recipe for confusion. I just said this. The writer of your text meant for it to be read as a whole, not chopped up into little pieces according to your whim. You know, you heard the thing. Judas went and hanged himself. Go thou and do likewise, and what thou doest, do quickly. Right? (laughs) That's all scripture. I just picked the pieces I wanted. And I just told you to go hang yourself. All right? Is that fair? Have I represented what the Holy Spirit wants you to know? Accurately? No. Okay, but we, we we do this sometimes. Okay. Analyzing is looking at the parts. The parts are important, but the parts get their meaning from their relationships to each other and to the whole. Okay? You can... Take a bunch of sentence, a bunch of words and make a sentence. Um, oh, let's see. The dog ate the squirrel. That makes a whole lot of sense, right? Take the same words, rearrange them. The squirrel ate the dog. Does that say the same thing? It's a big <laughs> squirrel. Yeah. It doesn't say the same thing, right? But it's the same words. What's the difference? It's the order. It's the relationship. Okay, Now, in our language, we know that one is the direct object and one is the subject because one comes first and one comes second. That relationship is very important. You can't take the words of Scripture and put them in a box and shake it up and throw it out and pick them up and see what it says. The order, the sequence, the relationship, the clauses, the paragraphs, all that stuff is where the meaning is found. It's found in the relationships of the parts, not just the parts by themselves. Okay, so analysis is important, but don't do it without doing synthesis. Okay. First step of analysis is to read the text. Okay, this is the most important part. Let me give you some tips. Read it a lot of times. OK? How often are we reading along through our Bibles when we get to see something to say, "Huh, did that say what I thought it said?" And you go back and read it once and you go, hmm, I'm not sure," and you move on."? Okay, If you want to get clarity, read the thing 10 or 20 times. My students in the Philippines hated me, but in some classes I would make them read a book of the Bible seven times. And they were all upset, but when it was done, they said, you know what? I'm starting to understand this thing. And all they did was just read it. We're lazy. And read it in different translations. Use the NIV and the New American (laughs) Standard and the Net Bible and the New King James and just read it. Read it, read it, read it, read it. You'll be surprised what you see just doing that. Okay, Read it within its context. Okay, if you're going to study Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's good to read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 10 or 20 times. But before you read it 10 or 20 times, read the chapter once or twice. So you know where it comes in there, because its meaning is related to what comes before it and what comes after it. Okay, this, is, this is the way speech works, right? Do you ever turn on the radio and you get the second half of a sentence and you go, whoa! <laughs> and you can't back up, unfortunately. You know, <clears throat> um, The great thing about what's written is you can go back and you can look at what came before it and you can look at what comes after and you can look at it as many times as you want to. God was very wise in designing it that way. And when you read, read for the flow of the passage in the big picture. Okay? You're going to look at details soon enough. But in a story, look at the characters. Look for the plot. Look for the crisis. Look for the resolution. You know What happens? Um, in poetry, look for who's talking and who they're talking to. Did you ever notice in the Psalms, the psalmist at one point is talking to God and the next point he's talking to you? You know, he'll say, trust in the Lord, you are wonderful. I'm wonderful? No. It's trust in the Lord, you, God, are wonderful. Okay? Pay attention to those things. They're pretty obvious if you think about them. But if you're sloppy, you may miss them. Okay? In didactic literature, that's literature that teaches you directly, like the book of Romans, okay? Look for the topic. Look for what's repeated. Look for the emphasis. Okay. Step two observe the text analytically. Now, here we're starting to look at the parts of the text. Look at and notice the words. Okay? And we're not going to do a lesson on grammar. But words are basically nouns person, place, or thing, article, the, this, a, okay? Verbs, those are action words. Prepositions, these are really important. In, on, by, with, through, over, around, those kinds of things. And adverbs, adverbs are words that modify verbs. He ran quickly. Price gave himself willingly. Okay? Look at the words. Take some time to just look at them. And look at the phrases. Phrases are really important. You know, some of the old Bibles will say something like, and I'm going to make this up. um, Oh, I'm not sure I can do it. The NIV will often smooth things out. It will say, because this happened, that happened. But an older translation like the New American Standard or the King James will say, this happening, that happened. Okay? The NIV supplied the because. Okay? But you need to look at the groupings of words. Um, he cruised through the exam. Okay? Here's a pretty simple statement. Okay, but if I said because he had spent the entire previous night studying, he cruised through the exam. Now I've got a complex statement, and that's clause at the beginning because he spent the entire previous night studying tells you something about the action or what follows it Okay, pay attention to the clauses now this is mostly common sense Okay, you all understand how language works, you all know how to talk but it's good to just sit down and think it through now one of the, con- one of the confusions we have is sometimes we don't understand what the clause is modifying but if you study it, if you examine it, it'll become clear. Look at the sentences. Sentences come in basically three different kinds. Simple, compound, and complex. A simple statement is, I am hungry. A compound statement is, I am hungry, and I intend to eat a submarine sandwich after we get out of class tonight. That's two sentences joined together. Then there are complex sentences. Because my wife didn't feed me any dinner, I'm hungry, and I intend to eat a submarine sandwich after class. It's not true, okay? But that's a complex sentence. It's got two statements that stand on their own, and then this modifying clause at the beginning that tells you something, because my wife didn't feed me any dinner. By the way, that's not a sentence, is it? If I walked in, I said, because my wife didn't feed me any dinner. You're waiting there for me to do what? Finish, because I didn't give you a whole sentence. But in that sentence, if you got all the parts together, guess what? That tells you something, doesn't it? It gives you a reason for why I'm hungry and why I intend to go buy a submarine sandwich. Okay? Um, Okay. Examine and note the paragraphs and chapters. Now, be warned. The paragraph markers and chapter divisions in your Bibles are not inspired, okay? Somebody went through and they said, we'll call this verse number one, we'll call that verse number two, we'll end the chapter here. And in a lot of places, they didn't do a very good job, did they? Most of the time, it's pretty good, but sometimes it's not. So, be careful. Don't assume that when you come to an end of the chapter that you've come to an end of a topic. Sometimes it continues right on into the next chapter for a few verses. Okay? Now, let me just say a little bit about words here, okay? We are not studying Scripture in Greek and Hebrew, but this is worth saying. Open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I just want to give you an example of something. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is the chapter where Paul starts talking about spiritual gifts. And he goes through in this chapter, and he's rebuking the Corinthians for being hung up on particular gifts. And he's saying all the gifts are important. Okay, Now, you come to the end of the chapter, and he says in verse 29, Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Now, what's the answer to every one of those questions? No. No. Okay? And then, in my Bible and in yours, it says, in the next verse, but earnestly desire the best gifts. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes absolutely no sense to me. He just said there are no best gifts. And then he says, but you should earnestly desire the best gifts. Did that ever bother you? Well, guess what? In Greek, the form of the verb earnestly desire, that's a command, right? Is exactly the same as the form of the statement. You are earnestly desiring. Okay? Okay. Now, for some reason, all the translators translate it as a command. I think they're entirely wrong. I think it is, all the gifts are important, none is more important than the other, but you guys are earnestly desiring what you think are the best gifts. Doesn't that make a whole lot more sense? Okay, now, you can't know that without studying Greek you probably could know that by using a computer program that will give you access to some of this information. Okay? The only reason I'm pointing that out is that when we're talking about looking at the words, sometimes individual words contain ambiguities of that type. And you can be misled if you don't have access to the original language to help you. It doesn't happen very often. Okay? But I've got the audacity to stand up and say that I think all the translators got it wrong. I don't think it's a command. I think he's saying, you boneheads, the gifts are all important. Stop running after the ones that you think are the most important. Okay? Now that's That information is contained in the structure of that word, and it's a grammatical thing that comes from the Greek language. There are very few cases like that in Scripture. But sometimes you can run into those kinds of ambiguities, so just be aware of them. And if you run into something and you can't make sense of it, that may be a a clue that you need to dig deeper or go talk to somebody who can dig deeper in the original language for you. Okay? Any questions at this point? All right, let's keep going. All right, the next step, you can do this if you want to, is make a structural diagram. I'm not going to talk about this, Okay, There are a million ways to do this, and it's too technical, and we just don't have time. But some people do this. I occasionally will do this. Now. Analysis step four. This is important. Search the text for the topic, for the emphasis, for the logical structures. Now, here I want to spend some time talking about logical structures. Topic is pretty obvious, right? Topic is what the the author is talking about. Emphasis is what he focuses on. What does he repeat? Where does he put the force of what he says? Now, logical structures, this is important. Relationships between concepts, events, and statements of the text. Now, what we're going to do for the rest of our time is just look at some of these. There are examples in your notes. I don't think we'll have time to go over those examples, but let's talk about them. Purpose. The author tells you why he writes. In the Gospel of John, what does John say? He says, I write these things to you Let's see, is this right to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may? Yeah, let's go. It's John chapter 21, I believe. I'm going to quote it wrong, so don't let me quote it. Oh, no, I think I was quoting from 1 John, wasn't I? Okay, John chapter 20, verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. When an author tells you why he's writing or when he says this happened because of that, he's doing something great for you, right? He's telling you the purpose for which something was done. That is often very very helpful okay scripture tells us that the purpose for which christ went to the cross is what to pay for our sins okay it's very important now liberal theologians will say that christ went to the cross because he was some kind of nut did you ever see uh, jesus christ superstar right It's a blasphemous story that says Christ was a nut. That's why he went to the cross. Well, that's not what scripture says. Okay? Look for purpose statements. Cause or effect. It's very hard sometimes to separate purpose and result and cause and effect. They're very closely related. You don't have to isolate them exactly. But you always know that something happens because something else happened first. These are, these are important things. Okay, contrast. When two things are placed side by side. In the book of Hebrews, the priesthood of Aaron is placed side by side with the priesthood of, of Melchizedek and Christ. Okay, that's a contrast. Okay, comparison. Two similar things are placed side by side. a lamb and Christ okay they're similar right because they're both innocent they're both blameless they're both spotless and they both are killed to cover somebody else's sin an explanation or reason the author tells why this is very closely related to purpose again sometimes it's hard to separate these things Question and answer. Who uses this a lot in the Bible? Paul. He says, Shall we sin that grace may increase? And the answer is, No way. Okay? It's a rhetorical technique that grabs the reader. Repetition. In the book of Hebrews, we keep on seeing that Christ is better, Christ is better, Christ is better. The Levitical system was designed to be temporary. It was designed to be replaced. It's part of the old covenant. There's a new covenant to get in. Are you starting to get the point? (laughs) To go back to the system that was designed to be temporary is stupid. Stick with the one that was designed to replace it, and it's already here. He does that by repetition. Okay, pivot. A crisis event in a story that brings a change. you got the story of Joseph, right? Joseph is his father's favorite for good or bad reasons. He's doing his thing and his brothers decide to do what? They sell him into slavery. That's a major pivoting point in the story. The story goes in a different direction. A climax. What's the climax of the story of Joseph? Yeah, I think it's when he reveals himself to his brothers. And he says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Okay. How do you use logical structures? This is going to sound stupid. Notice them and let your common sense lead you as you move toward interpretation. This isn't rocket science. Okay? Interpreting scripture is not rocket science. Every one of you is capable of doing it. It's just a matter of sitting down (laughs) with the text, observing it, looking at what's there, looking at how the parts relate, figuring out what it says and what it means. You can do it. Okay? But it takes care, and it takes the recognition that what the book of Genesis says cannot contradict what the Gospel of Matthew says. And you can use that to your help, right? It's one of the greatest principles of Scripture. It's all cohesive. It all makes sense in the mind of God, and God's mind is not full of nonsense. So if there's something unclear over here, you look for help from some other place that teaches on the same topic and put the information together in such a way that it works together. Okay, That's called the analogy of scripture, by the way. We'll talk about that later. Okay. Next time, we will try some of these techniques on some specific texts. Okay? Next time, I'm going to put some stuff up on the screen. I'm going to have a blackboard, and I'm going to ask you to make some observations, and we're going to work through this, and we're just going to try it for fun. Okay? Um, your homework... Just read through the notes on observation to get a little deeper view of what we talked about today. And if you're ambitious, there's a chart. I think it's on the last page that deals with logical structures. Or, I guess, is it the last page? Okay. Um, That's got some examples. Okay? And you'll probably find it interesting to look at some of the examples for each one. Okay, we just don't have time to do that in class. All right, we have a few minutes. Do any of you have any questions? Great question. Let me repeat it so everybody can hear. What do you do if you're looking at a passage and you've got two good scholars who have differing views on the meaning of that passage? Okay. Well, the first thing that I would say is this. Very rarely is that going to happen where a fundamental doctrine of the faith is at issue. Okay? It just isn't going to happen very often because I believe God has designed enough redundancy into the absolutely essential doctrines that there's no question as to what they mean. Okay? However, um, how about... Okay. Okay. Yes, that's a favorite topic of mine and and we're going to have an entire course dedicated to that issue. I think what you would find in a case like the end times is that the reason different people come to different conclusions is that they start with different presuppositions. And then the question is going to (coughs) be, which set of presuppositions is the most valid set of presuppositions? So what you really have to do sometimes is you have to sort of go back and find out where the person is coming from. Now, for example, um, you'll read something and um, you're reading a commentary on Genesis and it'll say that Abraham twice says she's my sister. And the guy may say, well, this really only happened once, but the author of Genesis put it in twice to make a point. Well, you now know enough to know that among his presuppositions is the idea that the book of Genesis is not completely historical and it was woven together by a bunch of stories. So you may just say, I don't trust this guy because I know what his presuppositions are and I don't accept them. That's one way of dealing with it. I think the only other way to deal with it really is to compare the reasoning that the two people use to get to their conclusions and see what reasoning you think is more sound. Now, very often what you'll discover is that one guy did a good job of looking at the context and making it all hang together in his interpretation, not just to this little passage that you're concerned with, but say the whole chapter. And the other guy just jumps in and says what he thinks it means, and he doesn't defend it very well. There's a a lot of sloppy interpretation out there by people who just haven't done their homework. But there are some passages where good expositors are going to differ. And I guess all I can say is you have to weigh the evidence and see which one makes the most sense to you. But usually, it's not going to attack your faith. You know? You know, one good example would be um, who are the warning passages in Hebrews addressed to? Are they addressed to believers? Are they addressed to people who have gotten close to getting saved but never have? Are they addressed to a mixed group? Okay? And depending on your view on that, you're going to have a little different view as to what the warning passages are warning of. Okay, um, Settling that issue, who that they are addressed to, who the book is written to, is going to help you come to a cohesive view of the book. But, you know, some people think that it's written to unbelievers. Some people think it's written only to believers. And they're going to come to different conclusions, again, because their presuppositions vary. I think presuppositions are very important. Okay, And beyond that, I don't have any great wisdom. Any other questions? Okay, let's pray and let's go home. Father, thank you again for giving us leisure to talk about your word. We look forward to meeting again in a couple of weeks to really spend some time looking more closely at some particular passages. Father, please grant us your protection as we travel home. Grant that we may be sensitive to the guidance of your Spirit in the days ahead. Father, we would ask that as we study, you would deepen our confidence in your Word and our willingness to stake our very lives on the truth of what it says. He's building us a more eternal perspective that we can see ourselves as part of a plan that doesn't just end on this earth, but stretches off into eternity. A plan in which you've called us to be agents of you for the good of those around us and for the glory of your name. Thank you through your Son.